Hello, and welcome to the Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast, where we shine a spotlight on the important work being done by women in psychedelics. I am your host, Sonia Stringer, and I'll be introducing you to women leading psychedelic businesses, women shaping governance and policy, female therapists and doctors, indigenous leaders, researchers, practitioners, women leading nonprofits, and others who are making very important contributions to the psychedelic renaissance. Through our podcast and online community, we're committed to ensuring women have a strong voice in shaping the future of psychedelics, and we're very excited to have you on this journey with us. When you learn about the benefits of psychedelic assisted therapy and how this helps people suffering from anxiety, depression, PTSD, chronic pain, and other health issues, it's easy to understand why there's so much enthusiasm about making these treatments available to as many people as possible. That's certainly one reason that ketamine clinics are quickly growing in number in cities around the world. There's great potential, but also some real pitfalls to making psychedelic-assisted therapy available to the masses. And in this episode, we'll examine some important considerations, including how to know when it's time to scale, the critical questions and KPI metrics clinic owners should consider before scaling their psychedelic therapy services to other locations. What are the best strategies for finding and hiring skilled therapists who can deliver psychedelic therapy in fairly short session times without compromising on the quality of care? If running on a limited budget, what are the elements that should be prioritized within a psychedelic clinic and which are not as important to its overall profitability or customer experience? What are the key questions that clinic owners and even investors should be asking to know if they're scaling for the right reasons? And if a clinic brings on more clients and expands its services, what are some important strategies you can implement to ensure that your therapy staff doesn't burn out? My guest for this episode played a pivotal role in helping one of the largest ketamine clinics in the world scale across several locations. So she's got some invaluable perspective to share on these questions and more. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Celebrating Women in Psychedelics. I'm your host, Sonia Stringer, and the title of today's episode is Mental Health for the Masses, the Potential and Pitfalls of Scaling Psychedelic Assisted Therapy. I am thrilled to introduce you to my guest today, Dr. Dominique Morisano. She is a clinical psychologist and adjunct professor and researcher. She's also a teacher. She holds academic appointments at the University of Ottawa, University of Toronto, Center for Addiction and Mental Health, and Erasmus University Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Dr. Morisano has certifications in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy through programs offered by CIIS and MAPS, Compass Pathways, and Polaris, and she's also done practicum work at Synthesis. She is a special advisor at Field Trip Health, where she was previously chief psychologist and VP of Therapeutic Growth and Innovation. 
She currently runs her own practice in Toronto and New York City and is a consultant for several companies in the psychedelic therapy space. And she is also the co-founder of the International Psychedelics Research Conference from Research to Reality, which took place in Toronto in May of 2022. That's where we first got connected, Dominique. I am so thrilled to have you here. And obviously, you are more than just a complete smarty pants when it comes to this space, but through our conversations and just your reputation in general, I know you to be someone who has an enormous amount of personal and professional integrity and a real dedication to the quality of psychedelic assisted therapy. So I'm especially thrilled to have you here as a guest. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. So obviously, a lot of our listeners have likely heard of psychedelic assisted therapy. It's covered all over the media these days. But there might be some people that aren't really that familiar with the practice. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that, at least from your own experience? Absolutely. So psychedelic assisted therapy is, I think, really an adaptation or an attempt at using psychedelic medicines in a therapeutic context. It first started to occur in the Western world in the 1950s, and it involves the use of psychedelic medicine like LSD or MDMA or psilocybin mushrooms, truffles, ketamine. In the context of a therapeutic relationship, there's preparation for the experience of actually taking the medicine and then support during that process and then support after the process in terms of integrating the experiences that someone has had into their daily life and how they'd like to move forward in their future life. Great. Why would someone be motivated to do psychedelic assisted therapy? What kind of issues or conditions might they be suffering from? So far, psychedelics have been studied in the research context in a number of different areas. For instance, depression and depression in patients with cancer. And then they started looking at psychedelics in moderate depression and then looking at psychedelics in terms of treating anxiety and the psychedelics in terms of treating addiction, addiction to various substances like alcohol, cocaine, cannabis, opiates. And so people might be drawn to look into psychedelic-assisted therapies for a number of reasons including those above, or those feeling stuck in the treatment that they've been getting already, maybe with a counselor, with a therapist, with a psychiatrist, or, or their family doctor. So there are a number of reasons that people would be looking into psychedelic therapies, I think, at this point. Well, you've obviously invested an enormous amount of time and resources to be certified from a variety of institutions. So I'm just curious, like, what drew you to this work? Why are you so passionate about it? It's a good question. I was a postdoc in addiction research and I was studying cannabis and alcohol and I went to a conference and ended up meeting Matt Johnson, who's a psychedelics researcher. He, he studies mainly psilocybin at Johns Hopkins University and a number of other folks from the Johns Hopkins University lab. And they were telling me about their work with mushrooms and different substances. And it sounded really fascinating, the work that they were doing with depression and cancer and smoking. I would say that I wasn't quite ready to go that way yet, but I was at the same time studying addiction therapy and trauma therapy myself and working with it as a psychologist. Over the next several years, as I was working with my clients, my clients that were coming to me for work with significant trauma, significant addiction histories, many people would respond to treatment and go all the way through. And it might take a year and a half, two years, maybe three years to do a full course of treatment. Some of those clients would get to like, let's say 90% and we'd kind of hit a plateau. And so I would try to be innovative thinking of all different ways to kind of address the same issue, but sometimes it would just get to that stuck point and maybe I'd make a referral elsewhere or see what they wanted to do, how they wanted to proceed. Now, 
when I was working as a scientist, this was like in 2013, uh, my boss at the time, who was the senior scientist at the uh, Center for Addiction Mental Health, where I was working, told me he had started studying a plant medicine from the Amazon called ayahuasca that many people were using to address trauma and addiction. And when he was describing the way this plant was working for the people that he had been doing research with, my mind was blown. And I thought, wow, okay, this must not be a coincidence that I've, I've made all these friends that are studying mushroom-assisted psychotherapy. I've met, you know, my boss now that's an epidemiologist who's studying ayahuasca-assisted psychotherapy. Like this, this is part of some, you know, bigger movement. And maybe I need to start looking into this for my practice. But I wasn't quite ready. I was into the mindfulness and meditation world, and I was working with those practices and learning a lot of different extra-specific trauma modalities. And then I think something shifted for me in 2016, and I started reading like everything I could get my hands on about psychedelic medicine. And then in 2018, the Michael Pollan book came out, How to Change Your Mind. And I read it mainly because I knew it had some stories about the Johns Hopkins folks in it, and I wanted to hear those stories. And I heard about this program at California Institute for Integral Studies, and I didn't know that there was a program where you could go to university and learn psychedelic therapy. And even though I had done my whole psychology degree, like master's, PhD, postdoc, and I didn't think I would ever go back to school again, something in me said, this is your path. This is your next step. And so as soon as I decided that, I started meeting people randomly that had gone to the program people that knew about the program and they all suggested I applied, was lucky to get in and my life changed after that. So I hit the ground running and I found that what I was learning at school just really validated everything I thought would be happening in psychedelic assisted therapies. I think that there's so much potential for them for working with trauma, with addiction, with pain, with conditions like depression, anxiety, etc. It seems like it's a beautiful new world, not without its problems, but there's a lot of good stuff in this field to report to. Brilliant. And I really want to acknowledge you. I mean, any one of those training programs can really represent an enormous amount of work and you've been through several of them. So I'm just curious, how do you think that's informed the way that you approach psychedelic assisted therapy? I know each training program has its own kind of focus and philosophy. I'm just curious how, how going through all of those do you think has really benefited you as a therapist? Sure. The biggest one for me was the CIS program that at California Institute of Integral Studies. That took me about a year and a half to complete it. It included a practicum at Synthesis. So I didn't do the full Synthesis Institute program, but it did practicum there. So I went over there and volunteered in the retreats. With the other programs, they came after. So I wanted more training in ketamine. So I did about four ketamine training programs. I wanted even more specific training in psilocybin and had the opportunity to join the COMPASS training. The MAPS-MDMA assisted psychotherapy program was offered concurrently to the California Institute of Integral Studies program. So each of those honestly, was like necessary and not sufficient, you know, to being a psychedelic therapist. I feel like once you commit to this path, it's a path of lifelong learning. Like this year for two months, I haven't done anything formal in terms of the study, but I've spent two months in Peru in the Amazon jungle, learning more about ayahuasca and the practices of the, the Shipibo people. And I think that when you commit to this path, you just want to understand more and more about the work that you're doing and the possibilities that could come out of it. Well, up until recently, psychedelic assisted therapy has really been available 
only through underground practitioners or some kind of clinical research trial. But you played such an integral, pivotal role in helping this get established within a clinic and then a clinic that scaled across many locations. So I'm curious, what would you say are the most important ingredients to develop or deliver really effective psychedelic assisted therapy? I think this was a developing question. When I started at Field Trip, I think I was the 26th person on board and we had this goal to open many, many, many clinics and hire many, many, many therapists. And I was tasked at the beginning with finding all the therapists that were going to be working with the company. And I had to start thinking about well, what makes a good therapist? Like who would be the ideal person to do this work? Like ketamine-assisted psychotherapy because that's the legal medicine that we were working with. And there weren't a lot of people trained in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. That just wasn't a thing. It still isn't a thing. More and more people are seeking training, but there's still not very much if you think about the grand scheme of the number of therapists out there that would know how to do this work. So I started to think about like, what are some of the qualities that you would want to see in a therapist that comes and does this work with clients? So I thought really hard about what would make a therapist really amenable to this kind of work and what kind of skills that they would need to have to be able to deliver a treatment with psychedelic medicine, but in a short time frame. Because I was used to working as a psychologist myself with a free reign of time. So I could see someone for a week. I could see someone for a couple months. I could see someone for as long as they wanted to come, you know. And in the setting of the clinics that we were setting up, there wasn't that kind of bandwidth. There wasn't that kind of capacity. So we had to limit our treatments to short term. The model that we were working with at the beginning was six ketamine sessions and preparation and integration on top of that. And so the therapy models that have been really amenable to short-term treatment have been cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, motivational interviewing, and behavioral activation, which is another form of activating behavior change for folks with depression. And so I thought if there were those elements in the therapy context, if people knew how to kind of work with those skills, then they would be able to help a client not only move through the session, but also make the lifestyle changes necessary to sustain any benefits or improvements gained during the session afterwards. So I looked for people that had some experience or training with cognitive behavioral therapy, maybe not with behavioral activation as a specific term, but some understanding of how to work with behavior change, some experience with motivational interviewing. And again, this was my ideal list. I rarely found a, a therapist that fit all of these criteria, <laughs> but I would ask them about any specific training and trauma because even for someone that was coming in with depression, straight depression, treatment-resistant depression, tried five antidepressants, had never had success with therapy or anything. And they say, I have no trauma. When you put a psychedelic in the mix, when you give someone ketamine, sometimes stuff surfaces and arises that you know we might not have been prepared for, that we might not have expected to be coming. And so the ability to work with trauma as it comes up, even if it's not stated as an intake concern, is really important as well experience working with more serious post-traumatic stress disorder, complex trauma. And this was something where I hoped to find some therapists because I ended up developing a trauma protocol for field trip that was specifically for patients coming in that wanted specific treatment for trauma. And I knew that maybe not every therapist across the board would be able to work with these clients, but that we would have some in the mix that would be able to. 
then I looked for people that knew what treatment-resistant depression was and how that showed up in treatment. Treatment-resistant depression is a funny term for a state of depression where people have tried two or more antidepressants. This is how it's defined and they haven't had success. You could be treatment-resistant depression and never have tried there. So it's an interesting thing. And this is what was needed to get approval for ketamine-assisted psychotherapy in some of our locations. I looked to hire some people with substance use treatment and substance use disorder experience because we were hoping eventually to be able to work with some addiction as it came up. I asked people if they had any experience with psychedelics themselves. And it was clear that they didn't have to share this. There was no recording of this information or anything, but I wanted to know if people understood an alternate state of consciousness that they might experience in their, in their clients. If they didn't have an experience with any psychedelic medicine, I asked them if they had ever recalled having any state alternate consciousness. Gosh, I think I had hundreds of interviews. Like I learned about states of consciousness I would have never even thought of before. Like the state of consciousness that arises in long distance running or ecstatic dance or deep, deep meditation sessions or intensive yoga sessions or spiritual celebrations. I also asked whether people had experienced guiding or doing therapy with someone in an alternate state of consciousness. Many people didn't, but they had experience being with friends, being with others in that state and having to kind of hold space. I asked them if they had experience or daily practice of meditation, because I find in doing this work, it's really important to have a grounding practice yourself as a therapist so that, you know, your energy is calm and stable throughout a session. And then I asked them about their experience with ketamine, experience working with veterans, because more popular area coming up is how do we treat PTSD disorder in veterans, as well as experience with diverse populations, different cultural backgrounds, gender identities, different sexual orientations age levels, and just to make sure that they were really comfortable working with a range of people that would be coming in at, at our clinics. So these were the things that I was looking for in people. And overall, the feeling in the interview of just being able to listen, just being able to, you know, be calm and energy for the work and excitement about the work. These were the kinds of qualities I was looking for in therapists. Wow, that's a phenomenal list of criteria. Very robust and I'm sure will be useful for others that potentially might be hiring therapists like yourself. So I'm curious, that point you did bring up, it seems to be a point of debate in the therapy community. How important is it for a therapist to have their own psychedelic experience if they're going to do this work? Do you have any strong personal or professional opinion on that you want to share? Sure. I mean, it's one of those things where there's going to be a push and pull, I think, as this field expands and scales between the need for therapists and the need for therapists who have a deep personal experience about what they're doing. Sometimes as things scale, there's an ideal and then there's a good enough. And so I think in the ideal state that probably, yes, someone should have experience with the medicine that they're administering. And frankly, probably more than one experience because oftentimes these medicines show up differently in different sessions for people. And it might be helpful for people to understand what a range of different experiences might feel like so that when their clients go through them, they have a better understanding of how to support them. However, just because you've had an experience with a medicine doesn't mean that you know exactly what a client is going through with that medicine. And that's an argument as well for not necessarily needing that medicine experience. So I think I can see, you know, both sides of the coin. But at this point, I, I still feel pretty strongly that people need 
and experience with the kind of medicine that they're working with. It doesn't mean that they can't help the person that they're working with without it, but I think that the help would be even better if they knew the various states that might come up when someone was experienced. It, it's a more authentic communication. It's a more authentic exchange, I think. If people didn't have that background, I just wanted to make sure that they really knew what an alternate state of consciousness feels like, that there's more, that there are more states of consciousness than the everyday waking one that goes to work, you know, gets up, interacts with the family, whatever, you know, that there's, there's different ways of being in the world. It's really important to know how to access those in order to work with someone that's trying to actively access those things. When people didn't have that kind of medicine experience, I might ask them, okay, well, I totally understand. It's not legal. Right now, it's very expensive or there's a lot of restrictions. But what I then asked is, is there openness? If there wasn't, then I would say, okay, well, that's interesting. So why do you want to do this work? Like, what do you think it will do for other people that it wouldn't necessarily do for you? Why do you think it's important for other people to be in the state, but not you? You know, and that's when I would start to question. That's when I would start to ask people to look a little internally as to why they, you know, because there is a power dynamic. There is a a difference when there's a person that's not in a medicine Mm -hmm. state in a session and there's a person that's in medicine state, right? So I would want to have a little bit of a deeper understanding about why there was that desire to do that kind of work. Yeah. So I'm curious, when you were hiring more therapists and training more therapists and basically starting to expand the access to psychedelic assisted therapy within the clinic, were there any processes or systems that you developed that helped you not only maintain the quality of the therapy across more sites, but also that perhaps innovated it in some way? Yes. I would say like this goes across a number of different companies I work with, you know, thinking about quality control, thinking about how to not only keep things safe, but how to help people have the best experience possible. These are like the two ends of the spectrum, right? So on the one hand, safety is the minimum. Do no harm is the minimum. Give great benefit, relief, improvement help make a change in this person's life is the other end of the spectrum. There's so many startups in this space. There's so many young companies with small amounts of money or big amounts of money that, you know, still can be spent rather quickly. You're starting to think about, well, where do I put my money? Where do I spend my time? What do I need to do to provide good service, but still not go bankrupt? In making early on is really important about where money is spent and how money is spent. And I think if you put the money in the people If you put the money in the therapist, if you hire high quality therapists, if you spend the money on making sure that clients can have good time with therapists, then the rest of the staff matters less. So the chairs that people are sitting in, the beauty of the office, the coolness of the location, like these things matter less. The thing that matters most is the time that someone's spending with another person, the relationship. This is actually an area of big debate. There's been a lot of people that feel that psychedelic assisted therapies are doable from home and safely and well, and they have good results. And I know there's been research that's been coming out that say it's okay to do at-home ketamine. It's safe to do therapy through video while someone is under the state of a psychedelic medicine. There's a number of different considerations for each of those scenarios in the clinic, there's medical considerations, there's medical safety, making sure that people are screened properly, that people aren't coming in with specific medical conditions or specific psychiatric conditions, which would render the experience potentially traumatic or not successful or not helpful. 
So having a good relationship with a medical provider, having a medical provider available and included as part of the screening process is obviously key. It's a basic for safety. Having therapists also do their own screening and assessment or psychologists do their own screening assessment about a client's readiness and state to begin this kind of therapy, I think is really important. Knowing whether they can build that relationship of trust with a person, build that rapport with a person before going into the medicine session is really important. And I think sometimes people don't spend enough time in that preparatory phase. And the way I was taught psychedelic therapy was that it's important to spend about the equivalent of time in preparation as you do in the session itself, as you do outside of the session. And so if it's a ratio of like 0.5 to 5, to two, there's probably going to be some issues with safety, with success, with long-term outcomes. If you make them relatively equal, then you're spending good time. So spending good time in preparation, that's a safety key. I believe in being present in the therapy room and then being sure to have integration very soon after the experience itself. There is so much genuine enthusiasm for the potential of getting psychedelic assisted therapy out to the masses. There's obviously such a demand for this work and people who genuinely want to make it available to those that need it. And there is that challenge of striking a balance between operational efficiency of a clinic and the profitability of a clinic with the quality of the care. I think people are concerned as more and more clinics or businesses get involved, that there's going to be a lot of competition and kind of a race to the bottom and that the ultimate therapy quality is going to suffer a lot. And I know that there's some talk about potential new modalities, like for example, instead of a therapist actually sitting in a psychedelic session, that might be someone who is trained as more of a sitter or a guide and the therapist would be more involved in the prep and the integration work. Do you have any strong opinions on that, Dominique? I think it can be great to have a sitter or a guide sometimes. I think, you know, sometimes in certain situations, especially with people that aren't experiencing severe and significant mental health issues, that can be perfectly appropriate. What I think comes up sometimes is that people that are good at sitting, people that are good at facilitating, people that have done their work, their own kinds of trainings, their own kind of experiential knowledge gaining, they're not going to be that much less expensive than a therapist to hire. If someone is really good as a facilitator, are we going to pay the minimum wage? And is that going to fly? There's many therapists that are willing to do this work and get paid at an hourly rate. I can't say that the amount that's being paid is that much different, you know? But the problem is that when you're working with someone, you sometimes don't know what's going to come up. You sometimes don't know the severity of trauma that they may have experienced in the past. One thing we know working with clients with trauma is that sometimes it doesn't come out right away. I've had patients where like in the intake, it's not mentioned at all. In fact, year one, it's not mentioned at all. Year two, not mentioned at all. And then year three, wow, like there was a significant, significant serious trauma in childhood that finally there was enough safety and trust in the space and the relationship to share. And so I think that it's hard to predict when these kinds of things are going to come out. And at the very least, having people trained in trauma-informed practices, trauma-informed care, and also having people that know when you need to call someone for support. If someone experiences suicidality in a session, well, a mental health practitioner would be trained, have ethical obligations about how to work with that. And someone that didn't go through that kind of training might not know what to do in that scenario. Same with people getting potentially violent or having a panic attack. 
sometimes I think there's this image that when we take a psychedelic, everything's cool. You know, people just get really open. They connect with the universe. Maybe they meet a spiritual figure. They just lift out of their depression. And the truth is it can be a really challenging. And I say this word not in a negative way, but it can be an ugly process, like in a beautiful way. You have to get through the mud. You have to get through the dirt. That's why they say the diamond in the rough. You have to scrape off the outside sometimes to see the gem underneath. And so uh, there's many people that are not therapists that I think would be able to handle this kind of work and do this kind of work. I mean, we know that there are, but it's hard to standardize that. It's hard to say how much money that would save, but that's a long answer to a short question. So I would say, I think that's a potential avenue if it's financially feasible to have somebody there other than a therapist during the session itself. I will say that when you're thinking about continuity of care, that it can obviously break it up a little bit. So people can still have a good experience. People can still have a profound experience. People can still have an amazing experience, maybe even a more amazing experience than with one person because now they've had two relationships around this experience. We need to do some research on this. I think it would be really interesting. A lot of the people in the research studies were not trained therapists doing this work. They were trained in this kind of specific modality. So this is something to really continue to debate, talk about. I'm actually teaching in the Psychedelics Today training program right now. And that's a mix of folks, people that on the one side might be medical or clinically trained and other people that are just interested in getting involved in this kind of work. So fascinating question and something worthy of consideration. Like you said, I think it's top of mind in terms of trying to make this as affordable as possible to people, but at the same time, ensuring that the people conducting the sessions are capable, yes. as you said, whatever their sort of official designation. And I'm curious, Dominique, too, there's another model that's been proposed in terms of group therapy, where potentially yes. the, the therapist might work with a group of people in a way to help yeah. more individuals and keep the cost down. What's your opinion on that in terms of how that could potentially roll out? in a clinical setting? Personally, I think that's the future. I think that one-on-one -on -one sessions are awesome and can be really profound and deep and amazing, but group sessions also can be extremely profound and deep and amazing. We do group therapy all the time. You know, in every hospital I've worked in, in every clinical setting I've worked in, we do group therapy. But I think that in psychedelic settings, it's been harder to implement for some reason. And I'm not totally sure why. It's something to do with scheduling. It's something to do with the timelines of people. But one thing that I always say to people when they're engaging in this work as clients is you're investing good money. You're investing a lot of hope and time into this process. So for this period of whatever it is, like a week, two weeks, three weeks, invest it. So invest that time. Don't go back to work right after the session. Be considered taking the next day off. Maybe do a session on a Friday when you have the weekend off or before your day off at the end of the day or in the evening. And if people offer a number of different groups that are at different time periods, usually evenings, weekends, it could be possible for people to actually make use of these therapies. And I think the peer support that can be provided in a group setting is like untouchable. I have seen so many groups coalesce around experiences, help each other, support each other through the process, be people to witness the changes that people are experiencing. So I'm a big fan of group therapy. I think that that's the accessible, scalable way of the future. And I hope that people really invest in that in terms of the time process. I think in terms of the individual one-on-one -on -one sessions, 
the point of contention will be how many therapists must be in the room and what are the safety considerations therein. So I know of clinics where there's one facilitator in the room during a medicine session. And in most of the ketamine sessions that are happening now in many companies, there's one therapist. And so a lot of the models that have been tried in research are with dyads. Now, the reason that this has been set up has been for some practical reasons. Mainly, people have to go to the bathroom. Sometimes it's hard to sit for six hours straight. And protection, because you know there is a power dynamic in the room sometimes, right? And you want to trust the ethics of the person that is there doing the facilitation of the session with you. I will say, based on our conversation before about facilitators versus therapists, there are ethical obligations that therapists and medical doctors have. People break those, as we know, but there's consequences, usually in their licensing body. There might be legal consequences. In the facilitation sitter realm, there's not necessarily the same ethical guidelines or rules involved if there's no license to lose, if there's no criminal potential follow-up to a negative action. So sometimes having two people in the room, in theory, could help keep people in check. It will be interesting to see how that evolves over time. It sounds like it's very important in the research to date and obviously, you know, concern in terms of costs going forward. Yes. So Dominique, through your finding and hiring of therapists and developing processes within a clinic and helping it potentially scale across several locations, like you've developed some invaluable perspective. And I know that You've been sought out by companies and businesses and clinics that are looking to either bring psychedelic assistive therapy into their practices or potentially scale it. What are the questions or the conversations you're having with those people? What are they curious about? What's the advice you're giving them? And I know that's a big question for a short amount of time, but any highlights you could share from that, I'm sure would be of interest to people listening. Well, one of the biggest questions that I get is how do I scale? How do I get bigger? That's a question that many, many companies have asked me. And usually my initial response is one of, why do you want to scale? What's the purpose? And it's interesting to me because the first answer isn't usually, I want to help as many people as possible. I think that's the aim that a lot of people aspire to. But sometimes it's because they have a really cool idea. They want to spread it out across the masses or they are already building their business and they just want to get bigger and bigger. Or it's just sort of part of the process. Like, well, now we have one, now we have two. How do we get bigger? Like, how do we have a hundred without really thinking about why? And if that's necessary, or if that's important. What I try to see in people is how much is ego involved in this? How much is personal, I don't know, reputation or stake, you know, how much is money involved in this? Is the intent behind that scaling really to benefit the human population and our peers and our communities? Or is it just to grow for the sake of growth's sake? You know, and I think a lot of people haven't really thought through those questions very deeply. And I hope that as people think about scaling, they think through those questions more deeply because many times you can do great good in a community with one amazing clinic. And as word spreads and people get better, well, guess what? Their families start to get inspired. Their families start to make changes. Guess what? Their friends start to get inspired. Their friends start to make changes. They don't even need to go to therapy sometimes. Sometimes just one person being better and improving in a circle has an impact like that. Just reverberates out and out, you know, across so many layers of the community and region that they're living in. It's actually incredible to me. And so 
if you want to make a difference in a lot of people, investing and getting really good in one spot is really important, I think, before thinking about going out. Because with growth and with size, like more money, more problems, there's a lot of extra considerations that happen when you go big. And so thinking about those reasons why some benefits potentially of going big might be with regards to accessibility. Because sometimes companies with more money, more resources, more spaces have the opportunity to make accessibility options available at particular locations. I'm sure every famous coffee company isn't like breaking the bank in sales at every location. But there's some places that kind of are okay. They're not losing a lot of money and they may have more opportunities to kind of give back to the community there and other places can take the losses. So, you know, in my private practice, I have a range of fees. Some people pay my usual rate and then I always leave about 10 to 20% of my practice for sliding scale. And so the fact that most people are paying my usual rate allows me to be accessible to some other folks. And sometimes in a small clinic, it can be hard to do that grand scale. So accessibility might be a reason to go bigger. Otherwise, how are people in you know the middle of the country or in rural areas going to get access to services if places don't expand? It's harder to find maybe trained practitioners in more rural areas. This is another reason why people might think about scaling as just actual physical access to this kind of medicine. Such an interesting point, though. I think it's very easy for people to get seduced by that bigger is better mentality. What you said is so interesting. And I'm just curious if I was running my own psychedelic therapy clinic, what measurements might I be looking for to know that it's time to potentially open another clinic? Like, is there a KPI specific set of measurements or conditions that you would say are important before you even think about opening another center or scaling beyond your current location? I think when your clinic is full and when your therapists are full and you're at capacity, you know, in your clinic and the rooms are full every day, like it's running around the clock and you start to build a wait list and people are really clamoring for more treatment. That's usually a good sign that it's time to expand either in terms of the size of that clinic, the number of therapists you have at that clinic, the number of, of people you have at that clinic, or you know, people the next town over, the next state over heard about this place and they're really wanting you to come in there. I used to be working in the area of implementation science when I was working at Center for Addiction and Mental Health. And one term that we often talked about in that field is the idea of the early adopter. So there's early adopters in this world. These are the people that are going to be the advocates, the proponents that's going to be easy to like get a new clinic into that town. I can't say that every town in North America is going to be excited to have a psychedelic assisted therapy clinic. Not even probably every state, not every city, not every part of town. Like there's different parts of Oregon that are debating about, do we want like access to psilocybin in this area of Oregon? I don't know about that, you know? And so you don't want to start in the places that don't want it. You want to start in the places that do want it. So thinking about scaling when you're full, when you know places that want it, and you have people that you can staff at those clinics. Say a lot of people want a clinic in XYZ City, but there's no nurse practitioners there. There's no MDs there. There's no therapists there. Well, you're not going to have a great clinic, right? So it's like thinking about the resource factor, the demand factor, and the success factor of what you're already doing. That's what I think. Interesting points. And 
psychedelic assisted therapy work is very demanding on the therapist. I mean, most forms of therapy can be demanding on the therapist, but yes. What would be your recommendation there? Because I think for anyone running a clinic or potentially wanting to get into this work, that's a real consideration, correct? That it, it takes is. a fair amount of energy to do this work and that the burnout opportunities are very real. And that has to be all factored in, in terms of like the number of clients you're going to be working with and how you're potentially going to scale the clinic. I agree. I will say like from a training perspective, you know, when we were thinking about bringing new therapists on and training them and doing our full training, we wanted to make sure that people were going to be invested in us as well, like working with us full time. So you wouldn't want to necessarily invest in spending lots of money and time and training someone only to have them work one day a week and then leave a few months later, right? Burnout is real in being a therapist. You know, I'm a psychologist. I did therapy and trauma and addiction throughout the pandemic from the comfort of my own home. I'm being facetious. It was a challenging process. It was very challenging to like sit through this worldwide shock and massive disruption to our well-being and provide care for other people all day long, every day, right? And I know so many therapists that got burnt out from that. When you're working with therapists, when therapists are working with these experiences and these medicines, you have to really understand that they're not going to be doing it like clockwork. So maybe this is controversial, but I think two ketamine-assisted psychotherapy sessions a day would be the top end. I know people that can do three. I know people that could do three a few times a week, but they will definitely burn out. Having days off, having time off, interspersing people's work with other kinds of work that's interesting. It may be teaching, maybe training, maybe marketing, who knows, like getting people involved in different work or hiring people or not investing so much in training as a company in and of yourself, but like relying on other people's trainings and then hiring people part-time that can be fully present for the work when they're doing it. The other thing is, it's really important to encourage therapists to engage in self-care, proper sleep, proper grounding, good social time, days off, music, hobbies, well-being, maybe their own therapy. That's part of the job. So these are the things to consider is true. It's not easy. There's no easy answers in this field. It's a lot of dedication, a lot of time and a lot of self-care. Yes, very important considerations for sure. Before we wrap, I'd love to have you share just a little bit about the Research to Reality Conference that you co-founded. I had a chance to attend that this year. That's how you and I first met. And I do want to acknowledge you having been involved in large-scale production of conferences like that. I know how much work that is, how much expense that is. And it was truly a very professional and valuable experience for everybody that attended. So I'm just curious if you could share a little bit about what motivated you to do that and what made that conference especially unique. Sure, absolutely. I would say in early 2019, two former colleagues of mine, actually two former mentors of mine, Tom Babor, who's a social psychologist who just retired, but at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine, he was the chair of public health there. And Brian Rush, who was the senior scientist that inspired me with his ayahuasca work, they both connected with me and said, hey, we've been talking and we were thinking about doing a psychedelics event around addiction. Would you want to work with us on that? And I had just started psychedelic school not that long before. And I said, 100% yes, like an opportunity to work with two of my previous mentors, like on anything. Absolutely. I'm in. As we dove into what kinds of research we could present in an addictions conference just for a day, because it was originally just going to be a day, 
we realized there wasn't much out there in addictions and psychedelics. And we were like, this is interesting. We really need to encourage and inspire people to be publishing in this area. We really need to do a roundup of like what's out there and help people understand the potential of these medicines like for uh, substance use disorders. And then we were thinking, gosh, maybe we should do a bigger event where we have the opportunity to showcase more research because we started to see so many neat studies being done in this field. And we knew we had to expand it to mental health at large. So the day one of our conference was focused on addiction, but the days two and three were opened up. We quickly engaged other people, by the way, in the planning of the event. So Doris Payer works in Knowledge Exchange and the Canadian Center on Substance and Addiction. We involved Mental Health Commission of Canada, and they quickly became sponsors of the event. And Dr. Monica Williams got involved from University of Ottawa. She had just moved to Canada shortly after we started planning We were really excited about that. She's a prolific researcher in issues around psychedelics and people of color and racial trauma. We got Dr. Supreet Clare involved. He was working on MAP studies at the BC Center on Substance Use in British Columbia. And Mary Bartram from Mental Health Commission of Canada. We all were working together to try to make a conference which was focused on disseminating information without the influence of for-profit companies or industry. And it's not that we thought that industry wasn't important in the psychedelic landscape. It's extremely important. It's the only way in many ways anything is going to happen. But we just wanted to be able to have a place to present science where the money was not part of the conversation. We asked people to submit their work versus us picking and choosing, inviting the same people that you see at many of the same conferences. And this allowed us to attract a number of diverse speakers from many backgrounds, many disciplines. One thing that was really, really important to us as well was we wanted to try to create an event where everybody involved at every level was diverse and representative and inclusive of the people that we saw, you know, working every day out in the field and seeing in the communities that we were living in. And so we thought about diversity from a number of different perspectives, not just race or color, you know, not just considerations around ethnicity, culture, language, background, also thinking about gender identity, thinking about sexual orientation, thinking about discipline, thinking about level of academic, uh, academia, you know, students, postdocs, professors, community researchers, thinking about including traditional medicine elders, wisdom sharers, knowledge keepers, you know, that may not have gone the academic route, but went through a very rigorous other route of gaining experience and knowledge and wisdom. We wanted to involve people that were working in public health, public policy, neuroscience, clinical applications. And we were a bit shocked, to be honest, in the end that it all came together, that we were able to put together this event for three full days where nobody paid to play, like everybody pretty much paid their own way to come, submitted their own work, stayed in the room and listened to everybody else speak and learned about all of the different research going on all around the world from so many different countries in a number of different disciplines from a number of different perspectives. It was actually, I don't know, for me, it was really moving, incredible as an experience to be a part of. I had dedicated, I think, over a thousand hours of my free time over the previous three years to put on the event, you know, we did barely break even. It was quite a production, but as a gift to the field, that was kind of our motivation. It was a gift to the field to say, hey, look at what we can do if we come together. We can showcase all the incredible work happening 
from so many different perspectives, from so many different disciplines, um, and really think about where we're at as a field and where we want to go. Because especially in the last year or two, there's been a lot of issues coming up that has given the field pause related to money, related to ethics, related to effectiveness. And it's important to kind of take a pause sometimes and think about where we're going. Yeah, it was extraordinary. And just the caliber of talent showcased amongst the presenters was obvious. And it was also obvious, Dominique, the level of thought you and the other co-founders and and organizers put into making sure that feminine voices were included in the conversation, diverse voices. And I know that it sounds almost obvious that that's just the fair and right thing to do. But would you also speak to how important that is in terms of the quality of the research that can be done going forward when those perspectives are included? Yes. I mean, honestly, it was a different conversation. I think in early psychedelics conferences, like a lot of the voices that you heard were white men, you know, and it's nobody's fault that a lot of white men were given the opportunity to study and could be interested in these things and talk about them. But it is the fault of the field that we didn't encourage enough women, non-binary, gender diverse, and diverse in other ways, voices to be a part of this work and that we didn't bring people in. We didn't, you know, teach people in a variety of different areas and communities about this kind of work. So extending the call to a number of different people really changed the conversation. We included qualitative research. We included community-based research. These are kinds of research that are not often part of the conversation at typical psychedelics research conferences. Not that there's many typical ones, but the predecessors that we have, it's been largely focused on quantitative research. Indigenous research methodologies, focusing some of those feminist practices on diverse ways of knowing. We wanted to highlight that there's a number of different ways to do research, that there's a number of ways, different ways to do practice, and that it's not always all about the neuroscience or even the, the medical office. There's a number of ways to learn about these medicines and through a number of different lenses. I don't know if that makes any sense or if that's clear, but. It does. And I mean, this podcast obviously is focused on the role of women and celebrating their roles. And I don't think it's just gender related. I think it's a leadership style. It's a particular way of looking at the world that is finding its way into more male dominated spaces like the research side and the business side. And I, I do think it really adds a richness and a and a multi-layered dimension to the conversation or the work that's being done. So I was really thrilled to see that you made such an effort to highlight that. And it certainly was reflected in just the overall quality of the conference. It was extremely noticeable. So I really acknowledge you for that. And I know that's it's an enormous amount of work. So I can't imagine you're even thinking about doing another one, but would there be another conference in the future if you could devote the time or is it going to be a one-time thing? I mean, never say never. And I would love to, you know, help other people plan events, plan conferences. I definitely learned a lot in that experience, but to lead it myself anytime soon is a low possibility. I think I said this before. It's like when people say, what do you do for fun? You know, I would be like, I plan an academic research conference (laughs) (laughs) for three years, you know? So as I told everybody at the conference, you know, on the last day, this was my gift to the field. This was a gift of love to this area of work, which I feel very passionate about, very engaged and very committed to. And I hope that the way that we did the event 
showcasing that you can highlight a number of different voices from so many different backgrounds and learn so much and have an amazing experience learning from each other is an inspiration for other people that want to do these kinds of events where those kinds of considerations are put first, where the money's coming from, who's speaking. Are we, by inviting people only, are we limiting the voices and perspectives that could potentially be showcased in this work? Because by giving people the opportunity to submit and apply and try to be involved with official peer review where we were trying to be objective and not knowing necessarily who was applying, it allowed people to come up on stage that hadn't been on stage before, that hadn't been given the opportunity. And a lot of those people wowed the people in the audience and are now getting a lot of opportunities because of it. So anyways, it's a learning opportunity, I think, for people. And I hope that, oh, I will say this, the videos from the conference are going to be up on our website this coming week from <laughs> researchtoreality.com. And we were able to get permission to have the videos be open access for the next six months. So till about April, 2023. So I hope people can check them out and see what a kind of an event we had and the kind of talks that we showcased. I'm really glad to hear that was going to be my last question because I knew that you had recorded it and I would highly encourage anybody in the space who wants to get a peek into the research and really see those diverse voices amplified through that conference. I think they'd find it extremely beneficial and fascinating. Awesome. Well, I could talk to you all day and you're a wealth of information and I'd love to have you come back at some point, maybe as things progress in the clinical models, I'm sure you'll have a lot more insight to share down the road. But in the meantime, for people who want to follow you or learn more about your work or potentially even hire you as a consultant, where can they do so? Awesome. Thank you for that. I'm a semi-active member of Twitter. I haven't totally figured out the algorithm yet. But my user ID on Twitter is Dr. Morisano, C-D-R-M-O-R-I-S-A-N-O. I also have a website, drmorisano.com. It's not super creative, but it is where to find me. And yeah, I'd be happy to hear from people that are listening and want to know more or want to talk to me or get ideas for their own businesses or processes. So thanks for having me on the show. I really enjoyed myself. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for all your contributions to date and look forward to following you myself and see you contribute many more things to this field. It's been lovely getting to know you and thanks again for the interview. Thanks, Anya. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast. If you like the episode, please hit subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We also have a free online community where you can meet and network with the guests of the podcast, as well as other women involved in psychedelics from around the world. To find out more, go to celebratingwomenpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn. Thanks so much and see you next time.